0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
2: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. It's a little bit so viel. man.
1: Sie
0: drehen
1: sich auf ja wie ein Karussell um Ihre eigene Achse. Ich Meister, mein Sie können sich doch sicher denken, dass Ihr Institut dem Schutz der Abwehr untersteht. Welcher Abwehr? Ach du, mein Gott, Herr Doktor. Das sollte jedoch doch wohl nicht entgangen sein, dass wir nicht in ganz normalen Zeiten leben. Ich habe Sie ja gewusst. So ein...
3: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Sam Deegan. Hello. Also back with us in the booth is Mr. Daniel Bird. Hello. This week we look at Der for Lorne, a.k.a. The Lost One. How should I say it, Sam? Der for I'm going to say The Lost One, the 1951 film from writer, director, actor Peter Laurie. This German language film has him as Dr. Roth, a German scientist doing secret research for the Nazi government during World War II. After he discovers that his fiance has been selling secrets to the Allies, he murders her. This is covered up by the German government, and after the war roth is working under an alias as a doctor for displaced persons after seeing one of the nazi officers who helped him cover up the crime roth is overcome by guilt about his wartime crimes now we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode uh this is kind of a tough movie to find still but there are copies out there and there are copies with subtitles out there so i would really recommend that you go out and track this movie down I don't want to say you haven't seen anything quite like it, because we will be getting into some similarities between this and other films, but it's definitely worth a watch. Now, Sam, when was the first time you saw The Lost One, and what did you think?
2: I think I've brought this up on past Projection Booth episodes, but I've been working on this book about World War II and cult cinema for a few years now, and I initially tracked it down for a chapter I did on Film Noir and had never heard of it before I started doing research and just fell in love with it. And initially when I found it, I didn't find a subtitled version. I watched it in German, which my German is passable enough, but it's definitely nice to be able to see it with subtitles now. I think it's a little bit more available, but sadly still not on DVD.
3: Well, it's on DVD, but without subtitles.
2: Yeah, not on Region 1 or Region 2.
3: Yeah, there's a really nice copy of it from, what is it, Art House? That's the version I watched, but yeah, no subtitles, so then I had to marry it up to a subtitle track, which left a lot to be desired because they didn't really do a spell check on it. And how about you, Daniel? When did you first see it?
0: Uh, Just a few weeks ago in preparation for this very podcast. It was one of those films which... um, I watched it under similar circumstances as you did and the way that I watched it uh, on, without subtitles and I had to get the file and sync it all up. Um, I was sort of expecting, thinking, this isn't the ideal situation to kind of watch this film. But uh, strangely enough, or not, as it turns out, uh, I did get sucked in, and it is uh, it is quite a special film. And uh, it is, I think, definitely a film to uh, to discuss and to rediscover.
3: Yeah, I saw this one a few years ago. I didn't even know that Laurie had directed a film. And when I found out that he had, I just have had this fascination with Peter Laurie for a long time. Tracked it down, managed to import it from Germany, I think through Amazon.de or something. Finally, then eventually found a, a subtitle track and was able to marry the two of them up. And I should probably go through and clean up that subtitle track and make it available to people just because it does leave a lot to be desired. Even with the subtitles not being a hundred percent, this movie just took me right in. this is one of those amazing Peter Lorre performances. I've only ever seen him perform in German one other time before, which was M, uh, which was made 20 years earlier than this. And to look at, The Peter Lorre of 1951 versus the Peter Lorre of 1931, the transition between those two people is very, very interesting to see, though he plays with some of the same themes from one movie to the other. Before we started recording, Daniel, you called it kind of a bookend from one to the other, and I completely agree with that, just to see those, some of those themes in there and then to see Lorre at the heart of both of those movies.
2: So I, I watched them recently, actually, as a double feature, because coincidentally, I'm writing a book about M. And they're both really physical performances, but in The Lost One, he just looks so exhausted in a way that really works for the movie, but to watch it back-to-back, it's it's kind of upsetting.
3: Just that you're seeing this person change so much over 20 years? or
2: It's like something has gone out of him. And I, I know in a lot of his films after this like the roger corman movies he did he definitely has a lot of comedy and there are some wonderful moments in those so fortunately this is not the last film of his career but it just you i think you can see how much of a toll the war took on him even though he wasn't in europe for it well the war and then the drugs too there are certainly plenty of movies where you could argue that an actor sort of sleepwalking through a role, but it still works. I don't think that's the case here. It just it seems like he's on some sort of subconscious autopilot, and all this biographical stuff winds up coming out in the performance that I don't think is there in M, but in a great way.
0: It's a very restrained performance, though. I mean, it's, it's always the danger when an actor directs their own film that is just really constructing a platform in which to grandstand but this is anything but i mean it is it is a you know it's a it's a very it's a restrained performance but it, it's very focused and i think actually by you know keeping that range narrow or, or that sleepwalking as sam says it does mean that even the smallest of gestures actually have quite a big impact particularly the ones during the actual murders, just standing in front of the camera. It's just amazingly simple. and So effective. it's, it's just insane. Yeah.
2: What he does with his eyes is so great. He hams it up a little bit, but in the most restrained way compared to something like psycho that would come after or peeping Tom. He's just such a great physical actor. And those, those crazy bug eyes, they work for him. <laughs>
0: I think with those little gestures, it's almost a bit like theater gestures. They're, they're like kind of very clear significations of something. It's, I mean, it didn't really strike me as overacting. It's just, yeah, a very a precise accent in the performance, which he'll do now and again. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a very clear, precise performance, I think.
3: Let's talk a little bit about the cinematography. I mean, this movie looks so gorgeous. It's shot in black and white. and it's interesting because it's stark settings, but lush cinematography to me, just the ways that the black and white play off of each other. And that opening with the train things look so nice and just him against the world, you know, just, he's like this little man in this big world and to see some of these shots, it looks so good. And it's nice that, yeah, he, he's directing himself, but, but, At the same time, it's not starting with a close-up of his face.
2: No, he positions himself, or so Vaclav Vich is the Czech cinematographer that he worked with, and he has himself positioned in often very strange ways. Like there's a murder scene that takes place on a train later in the film, and he often has himself out of the shot when you would assume that somebody would maybe focus the camera on the killer or on some body part of the killer, like their hands, as in a Jalo film. But he focuses a lot on empty spaces, empty indoor spaces, in a way that I really love, but that is also so different from a lot of the neorealist stuff coming out at this time, which tends to focus more on outdoor spaces and, you know, rubble and the fact that the cities are all broken down, which this has, but not in the same way.
0: It's it's almost like a kind of a, a blend or a mélange of, of expressionist stuff and also neorealist qualities. And I, I think what I really like about it is that it never becomes self-consciously expressionistic. There's nothing about the cinematography which is evoking something or, or, or in a, in a very explicit way. It's subtle, but it's still not straightforward realism He's definitely manipulating light and the frame and things like that and you know it it is a very nice and very interesting blend of those two kind of standpoints I think
2: and I love the film noir influence that creeps in but that's how I sort of first heard of this was that it was kind of a rare German interpretation of the film noir which it's really not but I like the influences that are there
3: well it's one of those things that I love where because the roots of film noir go back to the German expressionism, which, of course, M was very much a part of that Peter Lorre had starred in. And then the way that, well, the German filmmakers themselves, like Long, moved into Hollywood and kind of brought that expressionism with them. And just the, the, the seeds of that were planted and kind of grew up with film noir. And then Laurie takes it back to Germany. And it does become this great play of film noir plus this uh, neorealist uh, look. And it, it's it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Alan Barron's Blast of Silence, which, you know, some people oh, yeah. could say that it's a film noir and other people could say that, no, it's more American neorealist and or almost, a, a, you know, an early version of new Hollywood and it just mixes all of these things together and, and it plays with black and white indoors outdoors present past and just the way that he sets up all of these, these things to play off of each other. I mean, so much of this movie is told in flashback, which again, to your point, Sam is such a film noir thing. I mean, the best films noir have a flashback structure and this, this, is right there with it, with the way that we learn the past and the way that that is all being told through these flashbacks. And I love this indoor setting that they have with him and his, his quote unquote old friend. That is so, I don't want to say it's stagey, but I love the way that it is filmed so that we are playing with foreground background so much in that, just the way that we're watching because Carl John, the, uh, the old, old friend, quote unquote. He's always in one position, always sitting at this table, and then the way that Lori moves in the frame is what captivates us and what kind of keeps us interested in this uh the story around the story.
2: For a large part of the framing where you learn about the story, it's Carl Jan's character Hirsch is sitting down, basically getting drunk, as Lori kind of moves around this bar and he does more of that where the camera doesn't always focus on him and it makes it weirdly suspenseful. Like the first time I saw it, I expected that he was going to kill Hirsch much earlier in the film and it didn't do at all what I expected, which I like.
3: So much of his performance is behind Jan's back, which is great as well, which kind of speaks to The machinations of what his character, what Dr. Carl Roth's character was doing.
2: The more times I've watched it, it makes me think also about how the other characters don't take him seriously. In a way, they see him, like his patients and just some of the people around the displaced persons camp do see him as an authority figure, but not as a particularly threatening one. So he's always kind of isolated and on the sidelines But then you have figures like Hirsch, and when you meet some of the other Nazis like Colonel Winkler, who treat him like he's a ridiculous figure, and they push him to the sides during scenes where the two of them have conversations. And it's it's interesting that he uses that to his advantage. And based on what you were talking about earlier, Daniel, with the Theatrical gestures. It makes me wonder if maybe he took some of his influence as a director from working with people like Brecht, who had very specific physical gesture languages that they would use during their
0: performances. There's one shot that always just jumps out as you know that there's like a tracking shot when it's like following his feet along the ground. Yes, uh, it's just. I mean, they just. It's so quiet. I mean, it's just so simple, but the tension in the scene. And the way he actually, you know, he understands that the, the way in which basically just as something as simple as that and framing it like that, it is impressive just how seemingly nothing happens, but everything happens at the same time.
2: Yeah, the tension is great.
3: Well, we set up the film as kind of a a mystery right from the get go. I mean, after the the opening where we are following lori and following him into this camp. And this is a displaced persons camp, so after the war, people not necessarily having a place to go. And here we are with Dr. Carl Neumeister, as in new master, new mister, and who we learn – Shortly, used to be Dr. Carl Roth. He's generally liked by people at the camp. He is uh, inoculating people so that they don't get disease. He's taking care of this one guy's eye, uh, which, you know, eyes and films always fascinate me as far as seeing, not seeing, what's hidden, what's shown. And of course, this guy has a big old bandage over one of his eyes. He is introduced to this character immediately when he sees this guy. We know that there's something going on between these two characters, and that's when we find out uh, shortly that this was Hirsch, but his name is now Nowak. At one point, there is a great line where they say that they're both new men, and then I had to go out and look up that Nowak, a.k.a. Novak, is one of these – uh Great names where it translates into all kinds of things, but uh, new man, newcomer, or I love that at one point it's even stranger. And just looking it up and, and seeing it was also used for newcomers to an army and as an occupational surname for people who use the slash and burn method to create new arable land. And I was like, oh, okay. So his name is pretty loaded, but yeah, both of them have become. New people with their names, and then what we learn throughout the rest of the film is what the old people were like. And pretty early on in the film, they go to this bar, and that's where the majority of our framing story is told. God, yeah, just the tension that's set up because as soon as you see the look on Laurie's face when he sees this Nowak come in, it's just like, okay, yeah, shit's gonna go down. The play between those two characters. And the whole use of, there's a gun that is introduced, uh, I guess, yes. Chekhov's gun, right? But that gun just keeps getting passed around, not only in the the framing story, but in the past, the gun just keeps moving back and forth, back and forth, and keeps ending up in, in Laurie's hands. And no matter how many times he seems to give it away, it ends up back in his hands.
2: The first time I saw it, I mentioned... I was waiting for him to kill uh, Hirsch and it's because there's so many scenes where the gun winds up casually pointed at someone's head or torso (laughs) in, in a way that doesn't kind of like Daniel was saying. He manages to build suspense by doing so little. And there's no dramatic music when the gun is being handed around or pointed at people. It's so subtle, but it's so unnerving. There's the anticipation that violence is about to occur. And sometimes it does, but a lot of the time it doesn't. And the music can get
3: very bombastic. I mean, the opening of the film is just overwrought, (laughs) operatic-type music. And we get that later on during a murder scene. But yeah, there are so many quiet moments where you're just like, I don't know what's going on. It's almost unsettling because we don't have that music cue to tell us how to feel at this point.
2: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things he's so great at here, is he takes those film noir influences, the German expressionist influences, but he doesn't follow a predictable signposts. signpost. Like he, he shows you things, and you think they're going to go somewhere, and they don't. But it just, instead of being disjointed or jarring, it just builds the tension in such a perfect way.
3: And as they are talking, he brings up the date, December 8th, 1943. And that's kind of where our story and flashback begins. Just as soon as we get into this flashback, to look at the way that Laurie is carrying himself from where we've seen him at the displaced persons camp to where we see him in this flashback, Talk about a great physical performance. He just stands upright in the past. I didn't even realize how slumped over he was in the in the future scenes. But to see that, it was uh, just great. To, to, that's where we see, at least at first, we see Laurie with that spark of life. I mean, he's not burning as bright as he was when he was in M, obviously, 20 years before. But he is... A different person in those scenes than he is when he is Dr. Neumeister. As Dr. Roth, he has so much more life in him.
2: In the past scenes, he has a lot more engagement with people. And in the scenes set in the sort of present slash future, it's sort of like people bother him and he tolerates their presence near him. But the level of interaction is totally different.
3: Roth is working on these mutation experiments, and his whole world at this point is looking through a microscope and taking blood samples from these, oh my God, these adorable little white rabbits.
2: I know, they're so cute.
3: And he's introduced uh, very quickly, he has his uh, one of his lab assistants who we now recognize as the new Dr. Nowak, who in this point is, um, what, what are you calling him, Hirsch? My English to German it had him as Hosh, but hirsch. Um,
2: German is tricky.
3: Yeah, it's very tricky, especially pain in the ass. some dumb Midwesterner <laughs> like me. And then uh, he is introduced to Colonel Winkler, who's played by Helmuth Randolph. I love that one of the first lines that we get from Winkler or Winkler is that he can't stand the sight of blood. And when he... You know, is seeing these rabbits getting the, some blood drawn off, it just you know turns the stomach, you can't handle it. <laughs> which, which is great for who we eventually find out a Nazi officer cannot stand the sight of blood.
2: I don't think we've mentioned this yet, but one of the things that I think is the most confusing the first time you watch the film is that it doesn't really draw attention to the fact that this is specifically set during World War II. Like it takes you a while to get into the dialogue before you realize that they're at a displaced persons camp and not at a concentration camp in the framing story. There are no swastikas. There are no flags, the uniforms are these sort of sedate military uniforms, but he, so he lets you know where you are and who you're dealing with pretty much solely based on dialogue. And I love that line that is so sinister that I think he says to Hirsch right after Winkler leaves, where he says something like, this blood is infected, and if I injected you with it, or I injected him with it, you would immediately fall ill and die. And Hirsch looks at him like, oh my god, (laughs) but he says it in such a sedate way.
0: I, I agree. It is, it is like a war film without the war bits, but the war's like a backdrop. But that is a question which I found myself asking about the reasons why they're omitted. I mean, is it, is it a stylistic thing? Is it something about actually including these elements in a German film? What five, six years after the war's finished? Uh, it does actually give a very, very specific atmosphere to the film. And also, I mean, it is, as you were saying, it is all through the dialogue, but there is something very much lingering there. Infected like the blood.
2: I think some of it is stylistic, but a lot of it does have to do with when it was filmed. There wasn't a specific embargo on having overt World War II films. They just didn't perform very well, and there was not particular encouragement to have them made. The way that Italians have neorealist films, Germans had this sort of brief run of films called Trimmer Film or Rubble Films. The few that did relatively well in the box office like there's this one from 1947 called marriage in the shadows which was unbelievably popular and was like did super well in the box office and was much more explicit about the fact that it was about jewish people and german sort of anti-nazi germans being sort of victimized i mean it's basically about this german actor based on a real actor about this German actor and his Jewish wife who get sort of caught up in the war machine. Which is why I don't understand how The Lost One was sort of hated and ignored. Because you do have that. It does show up in... There's another film from 48. like, It sort of goes until around 51 or 52. So I I don't know really what the objection was to Laurie's film in particular.
0: It's annoyance, you know, and I think it's not... It's not black and white. There's no clearly uh, his character's nuanced, and the whole situation is presented as not. Uh, there's no clear of his bad, bad or you know good guys. Okay, he's a killer, but the fact that he's been set up in a sympathetic, not sympathetic light. But I, it's funny by coincidence. I watched uh, you know about a week ago. We uh, re- well rewatched Peeping Tom, and I thought that that's a similar situation in the way that you've got to a sympathetic portrayal of a killer and and the way the timing of the film, in the case of Peeping Tom, it's about 10 years after this, but it's still completely wrong. It comes out at the totally wrong time. And uh, and the film kind of gets lost as a result.
2: No, I think, actually, I think that makes a lot of sense because like those uh, Soviet-made Yugoslavian partisan films, a lot of the rubble films were very black and white. They had sort of at the end, they had these uplifting messages about how everything's terrible and we're all going to die, but at least we're not Nazis. This movie definitely does not have that message. And I think showing a suicide was problematic. (laughs) Spoiler, (laughs) by by the way.
0: (laughs) It is an incredible ending, that film, the way that on the one hand it kind of links with the beginning, but uh, it's just so simple. It's so simply staged. And again, you don't, as far as I remember, you don't get the big close up on his face. It's the full frame. I mean, to to Laurie's credit, I mean, that restraint of not doing those obvious kind of gurning and things like that. And, you know, it, it is such a simple, powerful ending to the film.
2: And so sad.
3: So we were talking about that we don't get a lot of contextual clues to where this was, when this was. Years ago, before I even saw this film, I saw a write-up of it where I don't know if the person watched it without subtitles or what, but their interpretation of it was that This takes place at a concentration camp and that Peter Lorre is basically like a Dr. Mengele figure where he's experimenting on the people. So when I saw this the first time, that's what I was walking in expecting and just thinking that this was going to be uh, just a horrendous, you know, horrible, horrible thing that Peter Lorre is Dr. Mengele. And when I watched it, I was like, okay, yeah, no, this isn't it at all but I can only assume that the person saw it without subs and just didn't maybe even realize that the flashbacks were flashbacks. So, because <laughs> I was like, okay, well, there is this camp and he is messing with this microscope and everything. If people have that in their minds, this is not that film. He's man
0: is impressive, too. <laughs> he's happy in some scenes, and he's really sad in Stoops and
2: all. <laughs> Also, even if you saw it without subtitles, there are no bunny rabbits at concentration camps. Like, I'm sorry, but there aren't.
3: No, they would be, uh, those would be little kids.
2: I didn't want to say that, but but yes. Little (laughs) twin girls or
3: something, yeah.
2: (laughs) I, I do think that there's a general, at least among Americans, a general lack of understanding about displaced persons camps and... There's this assumption that when you see people in what looks like a camp in a maybe World War II era movie, it can't be anything other than a concentration camp. Because I don't think it occurred to people, I mean, unless you, you know, actually bothered to study history in school, where people went after the war. So I I guess I I can understand why the person would make that assumption without subtitles, but the bunny rabbits.
0: (laughs) but well, it's it's a related thing but uh, but I do you remember reading quite a lot of reviews of uh Dschama sweet movie when they ah. had the inkat the, the 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 footage the archival footage in there and i guess i guess the reason is because of course it, it is in german titles because of course it is a it's a Nazi documentary film of, yeah. of a Stalinist crime so it's always referred to as as concentration camp footage that's the disturbing aspect the fact that something horrible happened in europe and it just doesn't matter whether it's stalinist or whether it's Nazi; it's all the same well, in- no
2: i think that's definitely another easy assumption that a lot of people make it's not that they forget that stalin is bad but i think maybe at least a lot of americans assume that everything he did happened after the war which you know obviously is not the case
3: well, that's why people call each other uh, Hitler or Nazis online rather than no, Stalin.
0: We do in England when talking about the Labour Party, especially in the... Yeah, we do call them... Well, maybe not... Well, yeah, Stalinist, Trotsky, guys, yeah, those names still apply to the left wing of English politics.
2: That's refreshing.
3: Well, and and Mussolini's right out of the conversation. I mean, people don't get what I call our our current president, uh, Cheeto Mussolini.
2: Which is such a shame. I really have been waiting for somebody to take that scene from the great dictator where they're on the chairs and they're they're like hiking themselves up on those chairs. You know, the scene that I'm talking about where they're both trying to sit higher than the other one. I'm waiting for somebody to just superimpose his face, his his face over Mussolini's face in that scene.
0: It's just one question I've got, Sam, about this this film. I mean, do you think, I mean, it is an interesting, given the fact that he's got this Hollywood career and he comes back to to Germany to make this film, it is a question of audience, because it seemed to me that it was a film for a domestic audience. It was a film for a German audience, and that also explains the the lack of visual context, you know, the the fact that it 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 relies upon a lot of uh, awareness on behalf of the the viewer and um you know it, so it seemed to be made for a german audience was that the case you think that was what what was on his mind he wasn't thinking the fact that this would be kind of subtitled released in the u.s and revived his career there
2: no it was absolutely made for a domestic audience and i think it's sort of banked on the fact that the ddr of east germany they like i mentioned earlier they went through probably like a two or three year period where they churned out a bunch of dramas about fascist injustice. So I think part of it was his homecoming. He, he really wanted to be able to return home after the war and have his career, not supplant his career there, but I think he kind of wanted a fresh start because he had a lot of struggles with Hollywood. And I think this was his way of making a really personal film that, he thought would be for a more receptive audience. And it's also, it's really frustrating to me because Robert Siadmak, who did basically the same thing. So Mike mentioned earlier, he was one of those European expatriates, specifically German who came to Hollywood and helped create and influence film noir then after the war went back to Germany. And in 1957, he made this movie, Nox Teufelcom, which is sort of the night when the devil arrived. But I think the English title is The Devil Strikes at Night. And it's a really similar movie. It's, it's bleak. It's about a murderer. And it did relatively well. And it's made, what, six years after Laurie's film. So it's just kind of upsetting to see how... The audience, like, he just made the film at the wrong time. and But it would have been for the same audience.
3: The timing is everything. Well, speaking of timing, to take this back to the movie, this is around the time of the end of the first act. And what Winkler's there at laboratory for is to tell him that they have found that Roth's fiancé has been giving information to uh, an agent in, I think it's London that he uses a dictation machine, that Roth uses a dictation machine, and then that is the way that the fiancé, Inga, is able to take the information about his experiments and is able to get them to this agent in England. And Winkler, I mean, in the subtitles I saw, he calls Inga a slut. And Mm -hmm. so Roth is just devastated that this woman that he was going to marry ends up being a spy now it's interesting though because he doesn't seem that political in this but i think it's the betrayal that really kind of sets him off rather than this being a you know how dare you betray the state it's more how dare you betray me and that he that she has been called the slut as in to imply that she is Going out with this agent, that she is fucking this other agent, and that there are all of these things that Roth is not aware of. The scene after they tell him this, that is one of those amazing moments for me to see the way that Lori has himself framed in here because we have this shot from it's basically under a set of stairs. Seeing him in his laboratory and there's all of these panes of glass, these uh, with uh, with lines going in between the panes of glass and to see him kind of cornered in one of those. It is a fantastic shot to just show, again, what a small man he is, what a small cog in this whole thing and just how little and, and useless he's feeling at that moment.
2: The scene that you're talking about where Winkler tells him, you know, she's a spa or she's a double agent, she's at you know, at best passing on secrets, he calls her a slut, I think, when Lore's character leaves the room and you see the door closing and you overhear Winkler saying to Hirsch, It's like I can't believe that You know, he doesn't call him a good Nazi, but I think he says he he says something like, "I can't believe a a party member like that, like him, would wind up with a slut like that." And you you find out later that Hirsch had sex with her, and so it just like it gets worse as the movie goes on. (laughs) That that sense of isolation, I think, it's little scenes like that that just sort of keep hammering in the fact that he really is so set apart from everyone else in in such a tragic but kind of eerie way like it's not that it makes his character less sympathetic but harder to relate to maybe
0: that was my immediate question you know is it is it personal or is it political but then i think when you when you look at the film the two things are related they can't be separated and uh, and the fact is that uh, that tension between the two is really kind of like uh, in many ways the motor in a similar way to a film like Black Book by Verhoeven in the way that, you know, when the the, the heroine of that is conducting all of these personal affairs with, you know, maybe not good Nazis, but, you know, uh, Nazis better than some of the other Nazis in the film. Uh, and then the question is, is this a genuine relationship, a genuine feeling or is it all in the name of some cause? And I think this is like the the same colors. They're just kind of mixed in a very different fashion here in the way that, uh, you know, the feelings, the betrayal. And, and as Sam says, it does seem to get more and more worse as the film goes on. But he, he becomes more and more helpless uh, simply because of the circumstances.
2: The script is... Based on a real life doctor who wound up killing his assistant and then killing himself, who I think is also named Carl Rota, which is Lori's character's name, but it's also inspired by Maupassant's story, The Horla. And I think that takes over around the time that you were just talking about, where he learns this information, he feels betrayed, and kills his fiance. Because there is that sense that he's taken over by some force. And again, like M, he just he can't help himself. The scene where he kills her also kind of reminded me of Mad Love, which is one of my favorite Loray films, where he just gets this look on his face like nothing can stop what he's about to do.
0: Just that smile—it's like the, the the scene in the train carriage. <laughs> it's just really, again, it's just really, really simple, but it is terrifying. It's the moment you just see him, just that smiling, and then she just realizes she's got it coming. It's terrible.
2: It's terrifying, and I think there's not a close up, but there's a shot where you can see sweat on his brow. <laughs> so, like, it's like he's going through some sort of internal struggle. Like, do I kill the woman? Do I not kill the woman? And obviously, you know you know where it's going. Yeah,
3: and that was really a surprise for me. Is that he ends up not just killing his fiance, but then he gets a taste for it, or that Horla kind of takes over from there because he can't resist going out and trying to and successfully murdering more women. That was one of those things where I was just like, okay, why? Why is he? Why was because the first killing is "quote unquote" justified, but then after that, he basically goes back to those M roots and can't stop himself. He has to kill
0: more and more people. Once he so, pop, you just can't stop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> that so that the very some of the very little criticism I've read of this movie, I forget where I read this, but it's always really gotten on my nerves. The The reviewer essentially said a lot of the things we've been saying that they enjoy the film, they like all these subtle elements, but they said it was too hard. (laughs) And I'm going to try to quote it as best I can, but they essentially said it was too hard to believe that an unassuming doctor would suddenly turn into a serial killer. And the sentence is right next to a sentence about Nazi experimentation and sort of commonplace violence. And it's like, really you, they, the way they toss this gun around. So he doesn't just kill her. He kills her and stages her suicide in a very calm, collected way and gets the other Nazis to help him cover up the crime. So it's like with this much institutionalized violence, is it really that much of a stretch to think he's just going to start wanting to strangle every woman who comes on to him?
0: (laughs) Well, was it, were these reviews written before or after Harold Chapman? Because he was an unassuming doctor. And how many did he kill in England? 250?
2: There's also a, and this was what I initially thought the movie was based on. There's a French doctor serial killer operating during World War II who I believe collaborated with the Nazis. And so it's like, it happened. Why is this so hard to believe?
0: Yeah, outsourcing serial killers for the masses <laughs> you know like, it, it, yeah. you
2: can't get a break
0: <laughs> but it's i mean, it, we were talking about it just before the the recording but it it did remind me the comparison it made me think of the the cremator the Uri Hertz film um uh, because that that just starts as like one killing and then it kind of becomes another and another and another and another. I remember writing about that film about 10 years ago and describing it as a very black comedy, and then something appearing online saying, No, it's definitely not a black comedy. <laughs> and there's obviously no humor here, but it is the humor in many ways is a way of dealing with the, the horror of it all in the case of the cremator. Uh, the fact that you, you actually have these minor killings set against uh, the backdrop of the Holocaust that's another that's another thing with this film the idea that you have got a serial killer operating within a uh, institutionalized killing on a massive scale and and i think that that is a complicating factor i mean how how do you where do you kind of purchase yourself where do you kind of get your bearings you know morally and ethically in a situation like this and i think that, that that's a very disorientating thing uh, for some viewers i guess
2: yeah, it reminds me of what you said earlier, though, about the difference between political motivations and personal motivations. And I think where so many Holocaust films fail is that they try to turn sort of mass violence and political violence into a melodrama or a personal drama, and it doesn't work because they can't. They, there's no good way within the script or within the the film itself to conflate the two. But I think. With this film, Laurie excels at showing you about the effect on the individual while still making it very personal.
3: Completely. His crime is covered up by his Nazi co-conspirators, and it seems to me that he doesn't want that. Because it almost seems to me that one of the reasons why he continues to kill is so that he can get caught and punished. Is that a fair assessment?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's part of why the film went over so badly is because it's all about guilt in a way that, I, like Marriage in the Shadows, which I mentioned earlier, another movie called Long is the Road, which is about uh, Polish Jews who escape from a concentration camp. Both of those films don't have anything to do with these themes of guilt and punishment and retribution. And I, I think it probably was just too much for people.
0: It's, it's like Crime and Punishment, but with like without without the punishment. It's just it's just <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know there's no no kind of uh, yeah we're, we're against this backdrop. It's just uh, yeah. Well, again, I guess
3: that makes an interesting comparison to M, where the cops are helpless for the most part. They may have the latest and greatest crime methods. I mean, one of my favorite shots from M is that. Picture of the blown up fingerprint, and they're working on you know very scientific methods of trying to bring this child killer down. But it's the, actually the criminal underground that becomes his captors and his 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 uh, a jury of his peers. Whereas in this one, there are no you know the 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 bad guys are in charge and they don't care. They are covering up the crimes rather than actually going after a killer because they have crimes of their own. To commit?
2: In general, I don't think it's a very effective serial killer thriller in the way that M is, but it definitely reminds me of that, just that sort of thing that I think pops up in a lot of later serial kill- killer movies that I think is also a component of M is that they are not going to be able to stop and the police can't stop them. It has to come from you know, an independent investigator or the criminal underworld. But it reminds me of, and I, I'm not sure when exactly he was active, but the, there's an American serial killer called the lipstick killer who wrote this message on a wall saying, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill. I can't control myself or I can't stop myself. And it's, it's like, that's the sense that I really got from M The first time I watched it was that he kind of wanted to be caught but the compulsion was just too great for him to make the kind of sloppy mistakes that his character makes in the lost one. It, it almost seems like he's desperate to get arrested, but it never comes.
0: Well, that's, I think that's come up a lot in the, the, the Jimmy Savile kind of all the fallout from all that investigations about this idea that, uh, uh, how he was constantly eluding and almost flirting with, with, uh, what, what you know all of his crimes uh, in the media and interviews and with people and uh and also almost had this frustration the fact that basically you can't you, you can't have your cake and eat it you can't you can't basically uh if if, if you if people don't know uh, and i think there's always a sense with this film there is that frustration the fact that just because of the context you know you, there is that feeling that you know it it's me- morally meaningless when- when 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 you're collaborating with the Nazis in this particular context. And it's uh, almost looking for a resolution.
2: Like investigation of a citizen above suspicion, where he just becomes increasingly hysterical because he wants someone to catch him. (laughs) Almost the Patrick Bateman. Yes, but here it's way more subdued, as we've said a bunch, but also I think more tragic because... It exists. It's almost like his guilt and his need to be captured exists in a vacuum and no one's paying attention to him. Anybody in the displaced persons camp obviously has no idea. And anyone in the Nazi regime either doesn't care or is openly assisting him. So there's no recourse like there's no way to make that kind of connection to the real world that will allow him to be punished the way his character is in M.
0: It, oh no, it's a seventies film and I think that, that, that tone I think you know, that is that problem with the fact that he was ahead of its time and, you know, it's it's almost like the Illustrious Corpses, the the Francesco Rossi film, and when okay, spoiler, he, when he does get shot at the end of the film, it's almost like a relief because it's just like getting nowhere the, you know, it's just with the investigation and everyone's corrupt. And it's a similar situation with this um you know, with this plight in this film.
2: I really like that contrast between these sort of seventies crime essentially crime films about guilt but in those there's always this kind of like you were saying a resolution where you feel the sense of relief and in this film you don't and it's almost like he has to become he's never allowed to totally become the antagonist because he has to become the hero and end it himself in such a weird uncomfortable way
3: that's true we talked about the criminal underground and not necessarily being able to catch the killer in this one. And it's interesting that the one person who recognizes him as a murderer is, I won't say she's laughed off, but it is the prostitute and her opinion is just kind of deprecated because she is a prostitute. Just, she's the one who looks into his eyes and calls him the death death maker and is screaming and carrying on. And he manages just, you know walk out talk to some of her neighbors and just walk right out the apartment no big deal
2: i'm pretty sure that there are scenes like that that pop up in later serial killer movies and i you know am tempted to say that maybe they were influenced by this obviously they weren't because not a lot of people have seen this film but in a way it seems like he reacts By instinct, and just is very calming and sort of collected, and tells everybody who he is and that there's been a mistake and she's had too much to drink. But the first time I saw this, I really thought he was going to find some way to either go back and get caught or was going to go past the point where he would commit enough violence that there would be no way he could get out of the situation. The next person who
3: kind of recognizes him speaking of being drunk is this uh it's the old drunk on the train who's like do you know me and is trying to figure out who this guy is so it and then the other person who doesn't recognize him later on after the the train murder is a blind man and it's like okay so again we go back to seeing and not seeing or being seen and not being seen and at that point is when he realizes that, you know, he can now claim to be a dead man.
0: Which is the similar thing in Peeping Tom, isn't it? With the with the, the blind mother of the Anamasa character. Who, who, who sees the guy who sees through him, you know?
3: I don't know why I didn't realize it, but just to go back to the train. I mean, we talked about the train at the beginning and the train at the end. And yeah, his big murder scene that happens in the middle of the film again takes place on a train and i i didn't make that connection earlier of just how that comes into play there that's a fantastic scene and especially the way that he plays against this other character this woman and the way that she's kind of coming on to him by like stroking her her fox stole and everything <laughs> it just building the tension again just ratcheting it up and her like oh yeah my husband's away at war and she obviously is in need of attention and it's just like lady of all the people to try to get attention from you have chosen the wrong person
2: yeah and that's something that's so strange about the women in this film that also kind of reminded me of and I know it's later, but the Orson Welles version of the trial where it's just all these women throwing themselves at him. And if you think about it for a minute, it doesn't make any sense. Like he's not outgoing. He's not all that conventionally attractive. And yet they're just drawn to him for some reason. And he never comes on to them. He just kind of passively accepts their attention and, you know, then murders them.
3: And what do you guys think about this whole sequence where it becomes like a little political thriller, almost in the middle of the film, where there's the secret meeting place called Babylon, where they all show up, and there's the, the cops are out looking for him, and he's there with Winkler. I mean, it just it, it seems really strange to me. I mean, it works. At the end of the day, it works, but it was just like, whoa, where did this part come from?
2: Yeah, but, I definitely did not see that coming.
0: Uh, and I sometimes wonder that that's maybe was one of the reasons... For the problem of the film because it is it is that question of on the one hand you can play with the junctures between genres but you can also end up in this kind of no man's land territory when the audience is asking wait so what kind of a film is this so it's not a war film is it a serial killer film or is it a political film and i think that you know rather than it it can actually result in the situation when you when scenes like that kind of ask you to rethink what you've been watching, which, you know, in some ways, and I think in this case, it, it's a good thing, because it's keeping you on your toes. But I think it can also be disorientating.
2: Yeah, I think it keeps it from slipping into this predictable structure of, he meets a woman, he stalks the woman, he kills the woman, he's racked with guilt. I, I think it nicely breaks that up and keeps that from being too predictable.
3: Exactly. Yeah, Eventually, he thwarts everyone who's looking for him, but he finds out from this blind man that everyone on this block where his family is, well, where his fiancé's mother is, and where this one woman who he was kind of flirting with, Ursula, everyone there is dead, and the scene of him going up to the basically the outside of the building and writing in chalk his name and signing his own death warrant as it were and just okay he's no longer that person anymore and he's given this second chance it seems like every time he's about to get caught something happens and he was able to walk away from it and that allows him to become this new person and work at this uh, refugee camp and that kind of brings us back to where we started though it's not just one long flashback. And that's something that I appreciate too, is that these are several flashbacks that happen throughout the film. And some of the dissolves that he does between the flashbacks and the present time in the film are just amazing. There's a moment where he starts to raise his head and he looks from one area in the flashback to an area in the present. There's him even where he's writing his name on the wall it dissolves back to him with his finger on the wall of the bar that he's at, just kind of making those gestures. Just really well put together, those match cuts.
2: There are a couple of what I would call kind of post war, sort of noirish thrillers like this that are about kind of how you can't escape the violent deeds of your past. Things like Orson Welles, The Stranger, or. Uh, the house on Telegraph Hill. But I think this does it the best in a way, partly because of these dissolves that you're talking about and how it kind of, instead of taking both of those films are set in kind of the present and you find out about what happened in the past. But I love the way that this jumps back and forth between the two and it can be disorienting the first time you see it, especially if you're watching it without subtitles (laughs) <laughs> but, and you think he's Dr. Mangala, <laughs> but it's, it's so subtle, but, and it seems effortless, but I think he probably had to put a lot of work into making that not feel disjointed. They're not jumps in
0: time, but I mean, there's a very similar match cut uh, strategy in The Cremator by Uri Hertz. And, and I remember asking Hertz about this. And he said he got the idea from uh, Jean Paul Sartre's novels. And it is interesting when you can actually you think about literary inferences in this context. The idea that you know it is very much like a a, a situation about things, kind of you know linking things, triggering of a series of events, or in this case, you know the opposite way around, When you know the, the scene ends and it brings you back into the present with the result and things like this. It is always it's obviously. Always- <laughs> Something which Sam's done a lot, actually grounding horror films in a broader context of gothic literature. Uh, but I do think that that is an important thing, you know, the, the role of not just literature in terms of adaptations, but literary devices and mimicking that kind of uh, not just stream of consciousness, but also association. And of course, editing is a great tool when it comes to visual associations. And, you know, this is what those dissolves do in such a great way.
2: It's so elegant, so much more than something like The House on Telegraph Hill, which links, it has a couple scenes where it links the present to past memories, but it's always something predictable that we would now understand as post-traumatic stress disorder, where it's usually something loud or violent that connects her mind to something loud and violent from the past. And here it's just, like Daniel was saying, so much more literary. Well, I apologize. I use the term match cut
3: before, and they're really not match cuts or match dissolves, except for some of the literal match cuts as far as the way that he will light a cigarette in one <laughs> shot and then take a puff in the other or I shake out that. a match. Oh, my God. And that, that plays because people actually complained seeing this movie the first time about how much smoking there was. And we even mentioned that a little bit before we started recording. Just he turns that cigarette into such a wonderful prop and just uses that, well, God, the smoke. Smoke is such a wonderful part of film noir that some people just overlook, and that, unfortunately, is becoming outlawed the, the farther we go in the uh, 21st century. But to look at these the use of the cigarettes again as a tension building device the, the the when is he smoking when is he not smoking the, you know passing the cigarettes back and forth i mean cigarettes are actually used in this film as a plot device like he uses a line at one point it's like had it not been for going back for a cigarette i would have been killed you know he would have been in that building when it got bombed out had he not needed to get a smoke and so it, it wasn't just some sort of like, oh, geez, Laurie's smoking a lot in here. No, it's actually part of the movie. It is, it is as much of the fabric of the movie as dialogue, as, as like I said, a prop. And he uses it wonderfully. Isn't he smoking when he
0: dies at the the end? Does he just pass yes. something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, thought, I, I was just thinking that I'm sure because it was, you know, it, it's it's almost comical. There's like one last smoke and then point out then get hit by a train. <laughs> no I mean, not that it matters but but it does seem to matter a lot just actually having this less correct.
3: Peter Laurie being killed by a train of course I'm thinking of the chase the uh the Robert Cummings film that we talked about last year cuz I'm just like, "God, didn't he die from a, a a train in that, but that wasn't his fault. That was him being driven by uh by Mr. Eddie or whoever that was and I was just like, "Oh man, dude, Peter stay away from trains, dude." The
0: job of the train really didn't even make any attempt to slow down it's just like whatever it's just well, Which... fortunate for him i mean it could have, the film could have gone on and on and on if the, the train had slowed down I like, <laughs> can't even kill myself you know? just...
2: <laughs> that would be i think that's what would turn this into a black comedy probably as if he just yeah. kept trying to kill himself and it didn't work <laughs>
0: the comedy version of Schindler's list about a guy who does everything wrong just slave labour womanising, drinking and then gets turned into a hero after the war You know, it's...
2: and then dies of lung cancer from all of the cigarette smoking
0: <laughs> you notice this list huh? I'm
2: always making lists
1: oh. in fact that's probably why Steven Spielberg cast me as Oscar Schindler Schindler's list I said, Steven, I make lists
3: all the time And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for.
0: (laughs) was funny.
2: Although the use of trains, once you've seen a couple of Holocaust films, you start to notice that there are fucking trains everywhere. (laughs) That certainly wasn't the case when Laurie made this film, but I think it's hard to watch a film like this after the fact and not separate out that symbolism. But he does such a great job at making it about more than just this sort of sad sort of pallid symbol about, you know, people being exploited by bureaucracy. While at the same time making it about the trains, you know, running on time and him knowing that that's a surefire way he can kill himself. It just, again, subtle, but, it's stupid, <laughs> but so not I, subtle I, at the end. <laughs>
0: those opening shots I mean you know that deliberately using all that kind of negative space and just having the train at the very bottom of the frame I mean it, it is basically reducing it to a symbol let's say a kind of uh, ble- you know kind of purging everything from sort of the, the space in which the trains is running it's sort of you know it is it's a great opening
2: it's beautiful but I think it also, the first time I saw it, I definitely, that's why I think I assumed that we were starting out at a concentration camp, is because you see these trains, and then you see all these people at this camp. But I like that he quickly makes it about, or he makes it clear that that's not what it is, aside from that, <laughs> that one reviewer that you encountered.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was probably the Video Search of Miami description. They might have even resubtitled the film just to make it fit those some rogue subtitles going around.
2: Dr. Mingala catches a train. All right, on
3: that note, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the author of the Peter Lorre biography, The Lost One, Mr. Stephen Youngkin. When you started your research about Peter Lorre, were you even aware of The Lost One being in his filmography? Because I know that for a lot of years, I personally had never even heard of the movie.
4: When I began my research, uh, some, so long ago, the, the lost one was pretty much a lost movie, an unknown movie. And I saw it in his credits and, uh, it kind of left me, uh, bewildered because there was almost nothing written about it. Uh, I think the only print in this country, uh, besides the one that Laurie brought back with him illegally, which is now in storage at UCLA, was available through the German embassy in Washington, D.C. I'm not sure if it's still available. It was many years ago. Now you can pick up bootleg copies once in a while on eBay. By far the best print available is through a German company called Art House. uh, It's a region Two, and it won't play here and it's not subtitled. Uh, But there was just nothing written about the film when I began working on Laurie which made it a lot more challenging. But over the years I interviewed uh, Fred Pressburger who took over production when his dad died (laughs) I interviewed had a long correspondence with Axel uh, Eggerbrecht who um, co-authored the film and some of the actors and the, the oh, assistant director and the editor. So I had to kind of build build my uh, understanding of the film from the ground up. It's like I said, there was nothing written about it then. Now that's all changed. There's a number of scholars who have peeled off the layers and there are so many uh, with real insight. The one that, um, I'd like to plug is uh, Gerd uh, Galinden at uh, at Dartmouth. Uh, he has set the bar very high with his scholarship. So now you can find articles and essays about the lost one. But, boy, back in the day, uh, if you could find a synopsis in English, you were doing well.
3: Well, was that experience like for you the first time that you had actually managed to get your eyes on the film?
4: I didn't know what to expect. I, I really did not know from the synopsis what I would find. And what I found was so intriguing, so layered, and to some extent inaccessible, because like Laurie's uh, assistant director said, uh, he wanted to throw everything and the kitchen sink into the movie. Every influence of his life wanted to be there. He wanted film noir. He wanted realism, the reportage uh, influence from M. He wanted psychological drama. Um, He wanted everything to be there, and maybe it was too much, and maybe that's why some of the film scholars today say the film is inaccessible, but it's mysteriously and intriguingly inaccessible because you just keep peeling off, like I say, more layers, and there is so much there that I didn't expect. So, And then it's also such a personal document. I mean, Laurie co-authored, starred, directed, and to some extent co-produced it. So it's an incredibly personal document.
3: Now, the name of the film is Der Verloren. Pardon my German. Uh, yours is probably much better than mine. But does, is that a direct translation to The Lost One?
4: Yeah, but it's it's Verloren. And um, it, it is a little confusing. Uh, Der was first released in this country in the 1980s. Reviewers referred to it as The Lost One. More recently, German scholars began calling it The Lost Man, which um, DER uh, indicates masculine gender, one has no gender. So it's not grammatically incorrect. It's just a little more vague and abstract. Laurie called the film The Lost One. And I think The Lost Man had too much of that uh, maybe me, me, me sound to it. But actually, they didn't know what to call the film. I mean, during production. So the distributor actually put it to a preview audience, and supposedly there were 640 suggested titles, and some of them were uh, Eyes Look at You, Outcast, Catharsis. It's hard to believe there were 684 suggested titles because I- I'm not sure that many people even saw the movie, but actual Egebrecht, who co-authored the film, suggested The Lost One or Death of Lorna, which he drew from Laurie's own personal or, or state of mind, which you know, which begs the question, why was he so personally lost? But um, for that, there are so many reasons. I mean, he had gone bankrupt in 1949. He was no longer living in Mandeville Canyon. It's kind of the country gentry lifestyle with his horses and his dog. His marriage was on the rocks. Uh, his effort at self-management had fallen far short of expectations where he wanted to you know, direct produce and chart his own course. <clears throat> his drug problem had taken a, a big upswing. And now he was back in Germany trying to direct and write and act. And it was a very, very big gamble. In many ways, Dr. Rota, um, the, the, the part he played and Peter Lorre, sat at different ends of the same park bench. That same sense of despair and aloneness is so palpable. Sometimes it's hard to know where Lori breaks off and wrote it, uh, begins. Uh, I think The Lost One, as a title, diffused the focus. I think this is what, what Laurie was really, what he really wanted.
3: What brought Laurie back to Germany? We talked a little bit last time about how he left Germany, but what brought him back to the country?
4: You know, some writers cast Laurie as a re or re-immigrant who came back to Germany with a distinct purpose to make a film that would resurrect his, his failing career. But actually there was no plan. Laurie never worked that way. He was never that organized. In summer of 1949, uh, Peter and Karen, his, his, uh, second wife, Karen Verne, were in England, uh, where Laurie was performing The Telltale Heart at, uh, at English theaters. Peter was clearly exhausted. He stayed in England while she flew to Germany to visit her sick mother in a town called Egelkoffin and then on to see her sister in Garmisch partenkirchen where there just happened to be a high-end sanatorium there that catered to celebrities, very high-end. So Karen booked Peter into Wiggers Kurheim for some R&R and actually it really became his home for the next year or more. So in fall of 1950, Laurie returned to England to appear in a movie called Double Confession, which has only recently become available through an English source, but it's, it's all region. And it is a beautiful, beautiful black and white print. I, I think it uh, classifies as a film noir. I'm not sure. There's some elements that do, some elements that don't. When Karen picked up Peter in Munich after he made this film in England, she saw immediately that he'd relapsed on morphine. So that would have been no secret to the director of Double Confession, Ken Anakin, who complained that Laurie was so out of control on morphine that he ruined the picture. So his stay at Wiggers, I should say, became yet another cure. And uh, he underwent a wide spectrum of treatments, um, including uh, electric shock therapy, which was almost fatal at one point. And they called Karen and Karen's sister to wherever they were performing it. And they thought it was it was the end. But anyway, he came back out of it, but uh, I always like to say, you know, relative to Laurie being a re-emigre, I always said he was more swept along than sweeping in the sense that you know he was carried along more than making too many active decisions. <clears throat> Some writers uh, have, have pictured him as a stranger in a strange land, meaning America. I mean, Laurie loved America and, and jumped in with both feet from from the moment he, he set, uh, you know, set feet on, on this country in uh, 1934, I guess it was. I see Billy Wilder quote about not knowing what to do once the war was over. You know, should he stay? Should he go home? You know, where was home? I don't doubt he said it at the time, but it doesn't square with my conversations with him. He told me that he and Lori were, you know, into Americana, going to wrestling matches, relishing the sun, you know, laid-back lifestyle, just typical California stuff. This was home. I mean, there was no going back. I mean, permanently. Same for Lori. Visiting Germany didn't burn any bridges. They were both American citizens and and here to stay. But uh, getting back to the narrative, some also refer to to Laurie's being a stranger in his homeland, meaning Germany. And, I mean, yes, he had been gone for almost 20 years, but this was not a homecoming. And I never had the feeling that he thought of Germany as his home. Cultural ties from, you you know, his cultural ties from the late 20s and early 30s were stretched pretty thin by this point. In fact, he'd actually spent more time in Austria and Switzerland than in Germany. So for him, there was no, hey, the war is over, I'm going home. He had no plan. The funny thing is he had to come up with one because a journalist over there uh, kept asking him why he was there, you know, what he was up to. And he insisted that he wasn't there to make a movie, but to perform what he called, and I'm going to quote him, the psychological task of treating the victims of the war. So he was referring to the displaced persons camps and military hospitals. And uh, so he sat bedside and he shook hands and he signed autographs and and tried to connect with the veterans. As a person, on a personal level, not as an actor. But that was nothing new. He had done that in the States. But he always wanted to do it with no fanfare whatsoever. So wherever he town he was in, he'd quietly ask about the whereabouts of a military hospital. And then he would just show up unannounced. So for me, it was a little hard to track those, those appearances because they just didn't make the paper. very. I mean, occasionally they did. But most of the time they didn't. And he didn't want it that way. If there was a need to connect with the past, I think it was totally unconscious. I mean, unconscious impulse, at least until an idea for a film simply fell into his lap. So at, at Wiggers, Laurie met a screenwriter, also living the high life there, named Beno uh, Vigny, who uh, interested him in a what he called a psychological study based on a, a Guy de Maupassant motif one that had was really similar to M, and maybe that's why he thought Laurie would be interested. It was, again, the idea of someone harboring two natures. And one of those natures committed deeds outside himself, you know, murders. And from there, the pleasure of killing kind of, kind of took over. So this is not very far from M, And ultimately, the, the guy in the story, he rids himself of the other being by killing himself, which is not very far from death of Lorna. It's kind of a melding of stories, but Vinnie calls his story Das Untier, the monster, which is was kind of funny because um, I don't know if he knew it or not, probably not, but Laurie's nickname for Soya his first wife, was Das Untier, the monster, mainly because Soya kind of ruled his life. I mean, she was the bookkeeper and the chaperone, and, and I mean, she managed the life of what otherwise was a pretty disorganized person. She filled so many roles and involved her the monster. But she was also in charge of finances because Laurie certainly did not have a hit for uh, the value of a dollar. But th- that was the first half of it. So an old friend turned up at Wiggers with a newspaper clipping about a doctor who had found himself in front of a train. And there's a lot more to the story and that's the part of the story that became uh, the narrative for The Lost One. But uh, Laurie described him as, and I'm going to quote here, as a man who blides into murder. He was a little sensitive about repeating himself because he said that plastic should not be remade. In this case, he called his hero, he called Dr. Rhoda a psychopathic hero uh, with his story set against the backdrop of Nazi Germany. So now we have, like I say, these two stories melded together. One of Lori's co-workers cued the press with the idea that the second script weighed, and I'm quoting here again, the enormity of mass crimes sponsored by the state against the fate of a single human being, a murderer who became a victim of murderous times. So that was the official line for the movie. The interesting thing is that they just kind of melded these two stories together. The DeMalfecon story that has so many similarities to him and then um, and this new story about this doctor. But now Laurie suddenly changes tune. Now what looked like a great opportunity, you know, it presented itself maybe to resurrect his, his film career and get back on top. Um, now it presented itself. He ran with it. Now the press, the German press has already guessed that he had returned to Germany to make it a film like him. I, I don't know why they made that conclusion, but something that uh, to recapture the past, turn the clock back. And it was clear to everyone he had M in mind, but, but he consistently denied it. He said, uh, didn't want to repeat himself. And he discounted, the similarities, the very obvious, overwhelming similarities between him and what became the Lost One, saying that, okay, you know, maybe it's the story similarities and then the threads and the narratives, but they were basically uh, incidental to his grand design of wedding this documentary realism or sobriety. Uh, what's what people, what his press people started calling Laurie realismus. So, you know, Laurie reality. And artistic symbolism, just basically what Lang had done in M with his fusing of reportage or documentary uh, filmmaking and psychological drama to diffuse criticism and, and, and confuse just about everyone, which he seemed simply seemed to do at every every turn, Laurie furthered the idea that his greater purpose was to help Germany overcome its recent past. So it's to, and I'm quoting here again, to lighten the conscience of only, of, of a, only a single man. And... So lust murder was it was okay, I guess, if it's sure you know a greater end artistically and altruistically, that he was trying to help someone. That's what he said up front. Now things changed a great deal because suddenly you have politics. And here also part and player become so unbelievably intertwined. Like Lori there's so many similarities here like Laurie wrote starts out he's apolitical, he's very politically naive and for both there are very steep learning curves. Uh, Laurie also was very apolitical from the start, neither interested nor involved in politics in this country. Uh, Breck tried to light a fire under him and he and he did sign a few things that uh, he did' believe in but mostly that was the please to please Breck. but like Breck you Laurie was an against her. And, uh, I think it was John Houston that said if, um, in a, in a group of Republicans, he would, he would side with the Black Panthers. But in, in with a group of Democrats, he would be a, a Nixon supporter because he was always trying to stir the pot, always been against her, which is a term that was often used with, 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 with Brecht. But once Laurie got to Germany, that all changed. Now his education began. Um, like I say, it was a steep learning curve for both Dr. Rota in the movie and Laurie, uh, and one that left Lori very uh, bitter and, and and disillusioned. As a result, it, the the politics kind of resonated in, in in what I think is kind of a clumsy and out of place insert in the movie. Which, if, if you watched it, you'll you'll see that there's all of a sudden the narrative is it breaks apart and there's a resistance effort with the Gestapo, or what one reviewer called a grown-up Indian game. And maybe that's why Egebrecht dismissed Death Larna. He he told me, he said, I always thought of this as just a sensational thriller with political shading. That's what he thought. Because I mean, everyone was so confused about this last-minute insertion of this political element. Egebrecht talked about the reluctance of the German people to to, to understand the criminal regime at, you know, at the time, Laurie's too same. I mean, Egbert stayed in Germany, so he, he knew all about this. But Laurie soon came to realize that 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 fascism, anti-Semitism were still very very much alive, and he really should be getting credit for holding a mirror up to the times because none of the other uh, re-immigrant filmmakers, and in this case, I'll call him a re-immigrant. I mean, he wasn't he didn't plan to return to Germany, but he was there temporarily. No one tackled this question of collective guilt and responsibility. But Laurie did. And, and you might have imagined that he would have sided with, um, with Brett, that, you know, there was, um, the few had imposed their will on the, again, on the many. There was, it was a good Germany and a bad Germany. But, um, then Laurie got to Germany and things changed. He sided more with Thomas Mann at that point, which basically believed that Um, The German character and Nazism were basically one and the same, and only by purging of the one could you atone and move on. So the idea of collective guilt – you have the idea of collective guilt and responsibility is what Laurie's dealing. He's tackling a very, very big subject. But… it, you know, judging by his statements, judging by the film, by the, especially the ending of the film, which was so darkly fatalistic and, and pessimistic, where you know, he was killed by the train, you get the idea that he crossed over to the man Thomas Mann camp in the sense that the German people cannot atone for this. The collective field cannot be atoned for until this entire generation is gone. So that was pretty stiff, but... Anyway, it's it, interesting to see how all of a sudden politics worked their way into a movie because it, they weren't there originally. And um, Laurie's a editor, he reconstructed the film after the the, the rough cut copy was burned in a fire. But when he saw the, saw the film in the theater, he, his wife couldn't. He said he said my wife couldn't hold me down. I just wanted to scream at the screen. This is not my movie. Because I think that a lot of this political Gestapo resistance aspect or a theme, sub-theme, I don't know if he wasn't aware of it, but he blamed Fred Pressburger, who uh, took over production when Arnold died. and uh, He blamed him for tampering post-production with the film and uh, inserting more of the political aspect of it.
3: What was the state of the German uh, film market or, or, or film community at this time in the early 50s, after having gone through so many years of war.
4: That was a real problem with Laurie. I mean, Laurie really wanted, uh, his idea was to actually launch a German-American collaborative film enterprise to do films released in Germany and America. You know, make the same film. This is what they did at UFA in the 30s. They'd make two or three versions. They'd make one for a French audience, an English audience, a German audience. And they'd have different actors the basement of one story. And he wanted to do this. the real problem, I mean, there were a number of problems. Uh, the first, the fact that that Lorna was a complete flop. The film bombed. Uh, Laurie Lori felt you know, totally misunderstood. Um, Fred Bresberger disagreed. He said, um, saying that they didn't misunderstand the lost one. they didn't understand they understood it too well and wanted no part of it. Um, and the final rejection and rejection, of course, was they stayed away. They weren't sure what Laurie was saying, but they knew it wasn't good. And not only was it morally ambiguous, but it, it also was hopeless. And like I say, uh, it seemed to f- suggest that the only atonement came through death and the death of the generation. But by 1950, German audiences had had their fill of what they called tumor film," rubble films that uh, kind of held a mirror up to the post-war Germany uh, with topics like return soldiery and anti-Semitism and war crimes and kind of a period of self-examination. But by this point, 1950, 51, they wanted to put the past behind them. So what would appeal to the German audiences by then were these small sea escapist films that romanticized country life. Those were very appealing, but the lost one was so dark. It was out of sync. It was the wrong time. It was the wrong place. And no one wanted a lecture from an outsider, especially a Jewish outsider. I mean, however secular he was, how dare he pass moral judgment? So they resented exiled filmmakers who returned to kind of rub it in their face. And Gerd uh, Germundin made an excellent point. Much of the lost one was told in a language of American film noir. It's it just pervasive, and it was a language that the Germans didn't speak. They didn't see all those I mean uh, those film noirs that, that Laurie and other actors appeared in during the forties. You know, for a translation, they would have needed to see a lot of Laurie's own you know key movies, you know, which were, were were basically unknown there. So yet you know, on another level, Laurie was himself the lost one. I mean, you know, like wrote a displaced and alone, and that was a bad first step. It dealt with something they didn't want to deal with, and that is the idea of collective guilt and responsibility for the war. Did the Germans believe that a few had forced their will on the many? I I, I don't know. I think that would be probably a case-by-case study. But it was an indictment of their culture, of the decisions, the choices that they had made. They rejected it, but basically they walked out saying nothing. Audiences just got up, walked out. They didn't want this. They didn't want to look at the past. They wanted to put the past behind them. And all of a sudden Laurie is like, Hey, this is nineteen fifty, fifty one. Let's uh let's go back to nineteen forty six and take a look at where we were. No, no. They wanted out. They wanted color movies with mountain scenes and heidi and um they didn't want this dose of reality and to deal with the guilt
3: you mentioned you know this was being made in 1950 and you talked about some of the issues that happened during the production such as the film burning I know that he also divorced uh, his what was it his second wife during this time it sounds like so many things were kind of playing against him at this point
4: well he and um, Karen were let's say estranged yes in fact when he was staying at Wiggers Kerheim. She had a room at an upper level, and according to her sister, was carrying an affair with one of the doctors there. But by this point, uh, Karen's sister told me that Peter called her in one day and said, I want to tell you something. If Karen was on a bridge and she jumped over into the water, I wouldn't make any effort to save her. Basically telling her, it's over. It's totally, it's his way, his unique way of telling her, it's over. But um, they weren't divorced for uh, a few years later. The actual divorce had to happen in America because that's where they were married. But Laurie did become involved with his third wife, Anna Marie Brenning, during the filming. She became, he met her, I believe, at Wiggers, and she became kind of a production assistant at a very, very low level. Uh, the other people, the uh, other people on the film, Really weren't sure what she was doing, whether she was filling any function, um, but she was because Laurie was, you know, involved with her at that time. And she became the mother. Um, she was the mother of, of their only child, Kathy Laurie. Well, Kathy so there was a lot going on behind the scenes. There's so much going on. I mean, Carl John broke his leg in an auto accident. Russ Brough got a copy of the film burned. Arnold Pressburger died mid-production. Uh, Laurie was in, <laughs> he was estranged from his wife, involved with another woman. I mean, his morphine use was taking a huge uptick. Um, he was selling rights to the movie that he didn't even own, basically to support his drug habit. He was smoking cigarettes that were very, very expensive. To get cigarettes at the, at, at the volume, at the, the number that he was smoking them in post-war Germany. The film was, I want to say it was disorganized. It was a mess. Um, there were numerous scripts. Nobody knew where the film was going. You know, Laurie is a, is a director. I mean, he was an actor's director. There's no doubt about it. But nothing, just as nothing ran true to form with the filmmaking, Nothing ran true to form with his directing style. Lana Rausch, who played Helen, emphasized just how different it was working with Laurie than in a normal studio setting. Uh, he began filming around noon, which was unheard of. You know, Most of the time they began early morning. Everything was incredibly low-key. He would invite players to his soundproof cabin to discuss their roles and make suggestions. And it's funny because that's where a word comes in, and I heard it a number of times, um, I kept hearing his co-workers use the word radiance, a strong personal radiance. And another actress called it an aura, and yet another they called it mesmeric warmth. Interesting. He had that, that, that influence over especially particularly the, 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 the female I mean, the actresses. But, uh, he, I mean, he just tried to turn any discussion into a conversation between friends. Now, this partially might have been stalling for time. Because lines were delivered, you know, minutes before they were filmed. Uh, nobody knew what they're at in their role, and as the actresses, the actors didn't know what they were going to do next. It's like, am I going to be killed? I don't know. Laurie says, "No, you're not going to know. If you knew you were going to be killed, you wouldn't have that freshness, that, uh, that uninhibited performance." Uh, one of the actresses um, describes his his method as loosening self consciousness. In a way that, that, that laid bare that you know, these these inhibitions. I mean, he wanted to peel off any old layers and, and begin again with a new a new human being. He wanted to um, you know, to open his actors to achieve you know what he kind of considered a newfound level of honesty, you know, something that originated in the moment. Now, like I say, that might have played very well with the fact that the script was so far behind and there were so many versions but he wanted that closeness to the character and the material to to, to have his players really show how they felt at the moment because that moment needed to be spontaneous, and it was spontaneous because lots of times they didn't know what was going to happen. So he did not want any emotions cheated. His his unusual, his unorthodox directing style pretty much played into the entire move, the the filmmaking and the fact that it was so different, so utterly disorganized. And maybe some people would say it wasn't disorganized. It was original, but there were so many mishaps and there were financial problems. And at one point they ran out of money. And, um, I think it was Fred Pressburger said, you know, what helped the production is that we got some insurance money from Carl John's car accident. And that kept us going. So it was, uh, Trying to stay one step ahead of the script, the uh, the creditors, and Laurie. After the film was was wrapped, Laurie simply disappeared. It's like I'm gone because he owed so much money to people.
3: Wasn't that kind of par for the course as far as him having enormous debt and kind of always trying to stay one step ahead of the the creditors?
4: Well, yeah, yeah, it was. It was that way since day one. He had borrowed money when he came to this country. He had owed, uh, Austrian writer Karl Krauss money. And there was a lot of correspondence back and forth. You know, when are you going to make the payments? We we need this money. And so Yalofsky was always uh, in charge of the correspondence. And she was just begging for more time and more time. And Peter's not doing well. He's not feeling well. Um, uh, he's not making the money that he expected to make from the Mr. Motos or whatever it was. And she was always asking for an extension. And, of course, he got himself... Um, over his head, when he uh, he rented uh, a ranch-style home in Mandeville Canyon, and he had horses and dogs, and he lived a very gentrified lifestyle, and he gave a lot of parties, and uh, he couldn't afford it, and that's why in 1949 he finally declared bankruptcy. And he owed, I've got all the bankruptcy records. <laughs> I think got, he owed so many people money. But that's why he did this tour of Stole Theaters in England. He left, I believe, in May of 49. He declared bankruptcy and left immediately. But he had prearranged to do this tour of Stole Theaters because his creditors could not get their hands on that money. It postdated the bankruptcy. His lawyer, uh, Bob Shutan, explained that to me, how he set it up so Peter could at least keep some of that money he made in England. And he's you know just found himself in England. It wasn't uh, you know I like to say he he didn't pass out in London and wake up in Munich, but it wasn't that far from that. to the fact that he just found himself in England, uh, someplace to earn a few dollars and didn't know where to go from there. It was Karen who uh, took the initiative to say, "You're a sick man. I'm going to book you into Wiggers." He kind of accidentally found himself in Germany, but of course once he was there, he had like I say he had to kind of invent a reason for being there because. He was a movie star and he's come back after twenty years and it's like, okay, this is twenty years since M, what are you doing here? And uh he had to find a reason. And the first one was very altruistic, of course, and I'm here to help people. And then, like I say, the two films or the two ideas for films fell into his lap and he combined them and uh and made the lost one. You know, there's a candid of Lori that um was taken during filming and his head is in his hand, he looks so forlorn. And uh, you know, one reviewer uh, described Laurie uh, perfectly. It caught the mood of both men, Dr. Rota and Laurie, and he noted, and I'm quoting here, he said, the tired sadness of his eyes, the resigned twitch of his mouth, a lost gesture, a hopeless raising of the shoulder. And another reviewer noted that Laurie looks so tired and weary of life, so it's really hard to know, you know, where one begins, the other one leaves off. And then there's a line in the movie that says, uh, and now I was walking through the night, blind, deaf and lost. And you can, you can almost hear the echo in Laurie's own life at the time. You know, at one point, Karen stopped by to visit Laurie on the set. Uh, and I said he would retreat to what uh, actress Lada Raush called a soundproof cabin, uh, where he held script conferences. But uh, Karen remembered that he hadn't shaved, looked pretty rough, and uh, he just looked up at her and, as, as she implied, looked through her and said, absolutely nothing. She just walked out. I mean, outside of the filming, he saw almost no one. He brushed, uh, said he, he rarely went out from his apartment. He had fully withdrawn. I mean, it's very much like the lifestyle that Dr. Rhoda was li- li- living in the movie. Both are locked into this dark struggle with their own past, and those pasts, like in a film noir movie, they're, they're closing in. Um, they lend that sense of claustrophobia to, to to both narratives, that kind of art and life, but both men are trying to find a way out, and there's a palpable sense of exhaustion and disillusion and sadness, and I think Laurie bled a lot of that into the role of Dr. Rota, the part of Rota. But one, one of the most interesting things I found in studying the scripts of an example of life imitating art that didn't make the film, uh, in an early version, and like I said, there were so many, Dr. Rota expresses an interest in literature, particularly Dostoevsky. Well, Dostoevsky was one of Laurie's favorite authors. And uh, the line is, Dostoevsky can tell us more about the human being than than 10 books about psychology. This is what Dr. Rota was saying in the script line that didn't make the movie. But I mean, that is just right out of, of Laurie's mouth because Laurie was always trying, he was grappling with his own drug problem, trying to understand it. He did not believe that... Freud had the answers, and he looked for it in a lot of other places. And one of those places he looked was Dostoevsky. So I found it so interesting that he wrote that line into the script, and sadly, it wasn't. It wasn't there.
3: I know you're not uh, an etymologist, but uh, you use the word for forlorn, and I was just thinking, boy, that sure is from you know that that's so similar to forlorn. Yeah,
4: absolutely. No, absolutely, it is. Forlorn and forlorn. Yes, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But, um, one of the things that you might ask me about, which I found really, which has got a lot of scholarly attention is the flashback, the 10 flashbacks. How do you hold a film together with 10 flashbacks? I and mean, he does it. And they're brilliantly integrated. I mean, sometimes you'll have a match in one scene and he's putting it out and someone in the next scene will be stepping on that, you know, stepping on that same light, that, that illumination. So, uh, brilliantly done. But, um, a, a lot of people have, have written about uh, Laurie's use of the flashback. In fact, film scholars—that's one of the the, the main uh, the, the points that gets a lot of a lot of space. But um, like I say, there are ten flashbacks in the movie. And uh, what I found interesting when I was kind of reviewing some of the scholarship uh, about the lost one were all the verbs or concepts that different writers or scholars have used to describe this this treatment of um, past and present. And uh, the, the past, I'm going to use some of these verbs here, the past penetrates the present. The past percolates, it encroaches, it interrogates, it collides, it awakens, it alienates. Actually, one film historian referred to the flashbacks as setting up a conversation between past and present. All Altogether, though, the bottom line is that that juxtap- juxtaposing of images of past and present, what they're, they're there to deny escape. Gloria is saying, you will not look away. There is no forgetting. Someone pointed out that it was Laurie's idea to alienate audiences, to interrupt the narrative ride and, and confront the viewer with the historical past, and drawing a very heavy line under the idea that there is no forgetting that past is present. And only when, the, you know, like I say, when the present generation is gone will Germany begin to atone. There's this iconic scene in the movie where Laurie Hirsch and, and Oberst Winkler... Are looking into a microscope, you, you probably remember the scene, and Dr. Rota says, notice the three single bacteria. Let's give them a name. One Hirsch, the next Winkler, and the last Rota. Inject these into the blood of a healthy person and he will not remain healthy. He's calling fascism a disease and he too is contaminated. In other words, the national body is contaminated and the only cure was death. And Getting back to the Horla, Rota kills himself when he realizes he can't free himself from that dark outsider, that beast within him. Again, it's the only way to break with the past. There is no forgetting. So it begs the question, is that what he expected of Germany, atonement through death? There again, Laurie called Rota a psychopathic hero, perhaps because he, Rota, believed in in, in the need for atonement. You know, I have a poster. There's, There's an A and B poster for the lost one. And the A poster is, I think, on the back of my Laurie biography, you know, small format. But what what is more haunting is the B poster. And the film opens with a little preface that says, this film is not freely invented. This is a true story about this doctor and the train and all this. And it's said that the words are set against a brick wall, as if this brick wall stands between guilt and responsibility. Uh, Maybe a wall they haven't broken down. Maybe. uh, I don't know if Laurie's saying that, but that's an idea. The poster has Laurie's face superimposed over this wall with his eyes closed. Like he's standing between past and present, that he's stuck in that wall with his eyes closed. The eyes closed meaning denial of responsibility or collective, you know. I may be reading too much into this, but I find that image very, very interesting. But it's only in the P poster which didn't get a lot of play in Germany because like I say, the film opened and closed almost overnight.
3: You talked about that whole conversation between past and present and so much of the film is a conversation between him and Nowak. And I'm very curious uh what the relationship was like on an uh off screen between he and uh Carl Johns. Regrettably, I wasn't able to interview uh, John who showed up many, many years
4: later in a film, The sorcerer Carl John is in that film. It was amazing to see see him at that point, but I was never able to reach him but um I don't think it was anything but like I say Laurie, except for the little discussions he had in his soundproof cabin with some of his actors, he really had nothing to do with him outside of the filming. I know Carl John was upset one time because he wanted more script pages. He wanted to know what what was playing in the next the next scene. And Laurie didn't want to tell him because he said, if you know you will not act spontaneously, he said, Well am I going to be shot? I'm not telling you. I want it to be fresh and honest. It must have driven the actors crazy. But the women the women Laurie always had that relationship with that special bond with women. And all of the actresses I've interviewed consistently talk about how that mesmeric warmth, the aura, the radiance that Laurie had, um, less so the men. So I think that he had a lot more input, directing, and discussing with the actresses than the actors. But that would have been so, so typical of Laurie. I mean, even Hazel Court from The Raven told me pretty much the same thing, how Laurie was so different Uh, so charming in a very, very personal, more cerebrally intimate way, and how there was this magnetism about him that was not sexual, more, more, like I say, cerebral.
3: Why do I see so many similarities between The Lost One and M? Is it just that it's about a passion killer, or is there more intentional reasons why I'm seeing that? Criterion
4: came out with the Ultimate M Edition couple years ago. Lots of extras. Beautiful. The print is stunning. And it came out with a book by Anton Case, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I believe at UCLA, uh, 80 or 90 page essay on him that is absolutely brilliant. He gets into the obsession with serial murder. He gets into, he doesn't get into the lost one, but he, he lays the foundation by such a thorough Brilliant discussion of him, but um, I'd like to quote somebody who is an old friend um who He's gone now. His name's Harun Faruqi, who was a German documentary filmmaker. And I think he just said it all. Uh, He said, the Germany of 1930 and the Germany under Hitler during World War II is one and the same. There's hardly another film that has foreshadowed fascism as exactly as M, and hardly another that has traced the remnants of fascism as exactly as Deferlornel. That is absolutely encapsulates it brilliantly. The similarities in settings, times are striking. You have societies in crisis, mass paranoia, hysteria, uh, the lack of distinction between what is legal and what is illegal. Uh, most fascinating to me is that very authoritarian character of Gustav Grungens with the, the black-loved hand. And I think one of the most interesting and emblematic shared signatures are those of Beckhard and Rota. Both are both victims and perpetrators in both films. Rota is something of a grown-up Hans Beckert. I mean, he too recognizes that an other, I say quote-unquote other, has you know, committed the crimes, crimes outside himself. But he, but Rota takes responsibility and seeks to atone for those crimes. So in a sense, you have the, the child and the adult victim perpetrator. I think that's one of the most interesting shared signatures between the two films.
3: At one point you're writing your book, do you decide... This is what I'm going to call my book. This is the title for the lost one.
4: There was an author who wrote a book on Bela Lugosi, and he called it "The Man Behind the Cape."
3: But um, I thought, well, maybe
4: I'll call my biography "The Face Behind the Mask" to indicate that I'm trying to get it—you know—peel off the layers, get at the real person, what any biographer, of course, tries to do. But I think what confuses part and player so much in 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 the movie. And, in, and perhaps in his life is the fact that not only do we have Lorre and Dr. Rhoda, but we also have the baggage of Laurie's screen identity. Like so many of Laurie's on-screen personas, Rhoda is a character on the margin of society, much like, you know, Ugarte in Casablanca, um, himself sort of a fringe creature, an outsider. There's always that sense of otherness about him that is very much a legacy of Laurie's own screen past, and it, it, it feeds that idea of a personal displacement, in this case on both levels, Laurie and Dr. Rhoda's. Laurie is struggling to save his career, to make his mark as an actor, but more so as a filmmaker, and it wasn't going to happen, and I think he knew it. In, in many ways, Laurie's portrayal of Rhoda was a self-portrait of a man who sought to escape the past, but to learn that there is no escape. But all of those ideas kind of percolated in my mind is that Laurie was always playing the outsider, the fringe creature in movies. I think he only played an American in one movie in his life, and that was in Voice at the Bottom of the Sea. And he, I also wrote something one time, insider is outsider, outsider is insider, in the sense that, Laurie wanted to be an outsider. He wanted to identify with Bertolt Brecht. On the other hand, he wanted to be an insider because he got Bogart versus Brecht. One is the insider, celebrity, limelight, the good life in Hollywood. The other one is the outsider, artistic integrity. Laurie always was trying to balance that, and it tortured him the fact that he wanted both. He wanted to be an insider and he wanted to be an outsider. And, you know, at one point he had to make that decision not to go back to East Germany, even though he had the invitation. But uh, he was too sick. He was too dependent on drugs. Many, many reasons he did not accept Brecht's invitation. Although at one point he was so desperate, he wrote Elizabeth uh Brecht's collaborator, and said, please find something for me. But I don't know how serious he was about that because he came back you know after the lost when he came back to hollywood he forgot about death of Anna. he kind of dissembled about why it was never released here and he said well he hated to indict another country's uh, foreign policy and whatever um but he um he knew it wasn't gonna play here he knew it was a dead issue he knew that being a filmmaker was over for him and he just kind of jumped back into Hollywood films, and he he wasn't he was he wasn't that bitter about it. I mean, he was bitter about the initial rejection of the film that he felt was misunderstood. But once he kind of readjusted himself and made beat the devil and turned the clock back to the Warner Brothers days with John Huston and Bogart, uh, he enjoyed making Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. He said, "You know, I, I enjoy living in Hollywood. I can be myself here. So you kind of wonder what happened to Laurie, the aspiring filmmaker, that um, it just didn't happen for him, and he knew it wasn't going to work. And I don't think it was maybe as much acceptance as it was resignation. And he was so, t- and he was tired by this point." I mean, he'd had years and years of drug use. It took a tremendous toll on him physically. He never was a healthy person, had had a number of surgeries. And I don't think he had the strength of body and will to go back to Germany and perform in East Berlin for very little money. He was comfortable in Hollywood and he was tired and he didn't need near the, near the finances, the support that he would have needed elsewhere.
3: Why is it that in 1984, I start seeing reviews for The Lost One? What happened around that time that people now are seeing the film? Yeah, it was released in the 80s, and I'm not sure who brought it over and who released it.
4: And I think it's changed hands. The rights to the film has changed hands so many times. And I know I talked to Fred Pressburger about it uh he he did he lost track of who had it. He had it at one point, uh his you know in his dad his dad's estate, and um, it was parceled out. And Lord, like I said, Lord, he kept trying to sell pieces of it to support his drug habit, and that really annoyed Fred because uh, he had no right to do that. But wh- how it came over here in the 1980s, you know, I don't I don't remember who finally bought the rights and thought let's give it a shot over here, maybe the art houses. And they subtitled it and sent it over. But, you know, I do not remember who did that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Um, I'm just grateful that the German embassy had a print that, you know, I could bring in and watch as many times as I want. In fact, I put it back two or three times and kept it for like a week or two at a time until they started, you know, kind of like ragging me saying, you know, you want to return this film, please? I had no idea. And that was many years ago. I don't know who brought it over here and why, but it got a lot of attention, a lot of reviews. And in Germany, it got a little bit of critical, positive, critical recognition for its artistry, the acting, and less so for content. In this country, it got a, a good deal more positive criticism for the artistry. I mean, some people might have said Laurie overacted, or Laurie did this, or Laurie smoked too many cigarettes, and uh, we were almost coughing in the theater just watching him light up cigarette after cigarette. But um, he did get some, some generally you know, good reviews, although some of the some of the reviewers thought it was awfully derivative of M, and then he had just like, okay, he's just kind of remaking M here, stealing from. From uh, from Lang. And uh, that's. Kathy Laurie felt that he. Well, number one, the idea just kind of fell in his lap. Um, secondly, he, she felt he was afraid to break away from something that he had achieved, through which he had achieved fame, had success. I don't know. I mean, personally, I'm surprised after writing the biography to see that. He chose a topic so familiar that he knew that people were going to say, this is, you're just, you know, you're writing M 20 years later. I mean, there are distinct similarities. There's also that very, like I say, dark, nihilistic, fatalistic message at the end, which certainly wasn't in M, uh, at least that explicitly, of uh, standing in front of a train, putting your hand over your eyes, and uh, and committing suicide is the only way to kind of atone for your sins. So Laurie certainly got um, pretty heavy-handed there. Um, Anyway, I I don't know. I don't know why he brought, why someone brought it over. It it didn't. It played a few art houses and then it was gone.
3: Well, I'm glad they did at least.
4: Yeah, I I am too. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. The film is not more available with English subtitles. There used to be a print. I I, I saw it years ago that you could buy for eight dollars or ten dollars on eBay. The subtitles weren't great. But, you know, they they served a purpose, and that's dried up. I haven't seen that in in years. So the only one is the beautiful print through Art House, and it has all those great extras. But there, again, I'm sorry to say they did not do
3: any English subtitles. Right. And then there was a version of uh, Displaced Person out on YouTube, and then the guy who owns the rights to that keeps taking it down, which is understandable, but at the same time... Oh, yes, yes. Um, That
4: was... uh, Believe between you and me, Robert, I had a long correspondence with him because he wrote to say, do you know who's putting up, putting this up? Who's done this? I had forgotten that. And he got back to me and said, please, do you know who did this? Like, he was out for blood, but I, you know, I had, I had no idea. God, that, that brings up an old, old memory of, of that in my correspondence with him. But, uh, so, I mean, a few people have gotten the English subtitles, but not, not many. And I think the Germans made a mistake by not doing a, you know, a second, you know, how they put two or three versions of a film on one DVD. I mean, this was a two-DVD set, but they could have done well with English subtitles or had an option where you pressed the you know, link and it just simply gave you subtitles like most movies today for hard of hearing or whatever. Because they could have sold so many more copies in this country, which I don't think it would have been a big seller at all, because not many people are going to be able to, to read to know the German.
3: Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great. Thank you so much for giving me an
4: opportunity to vent. I hope it works, and I hope the show is that you're pleased with it. That's all, that's mostly what I care about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There are the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if
3: you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humour, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reverence not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie-rama show
1: just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial massage please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terence. Wife Jessica, I have an idea.
2: What's that, husband Dustin?
1: As you know, we love movies.
2: Yes, dear, I know.
1: But we also love podcasts. I'm aware, my love. And then there's this other part of us that really loves movie commentary tracks. Get to the point, sweetheart. Well, if we made a movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program, it would certainly be the best married couple movie podcast slash commentary track hybrid audio program on the internet, right?
2: Without doubt. But whatever would we call it?
1: We are the Popcorn Popcorn Poops is a weekly podcast hosted by married couple Dustin and Jessica Kramer. That's us. Each week we choose a movie based on a monthly theme and then we sit down and record a syncable commentary track as we watch the movie.
2: But what makes Popcorn Poops special is that you don't have to sync up our podcast to enjoy the show, so you can listen to us like you would any other standalone podcast.
1: On our show, we like to talk about theory, story structure, genre conventions, and trivia with a healthy dose of dick jokes.
2: Gotta have the dick jokes.
1: Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Music.
2: Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for frequent updates about the show, including our weekly movie still identification game.
1: Visit us on the web at popcornpoops.com. We'll be waiting for you, and not in a creepy way.
2: Okay, kind of a creepy way. Yeah,
1: okay, fair warning. Movies and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast.
4: It's a blast. Far
2: out, 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 out. out.
3: This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly resent at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show. You lucky son of a gun. All right, we are back, and we're talking about The Lost One. And, you know, I was going to talk a little bit about the reception of the film, but I think we kind of worked that into the discussion, because this was not a well-enjoyed film in Germany and never really got a chance in the U.S. until, like, the 80s when it seemed to kind of come out i mean when i was looking around i started seeing reviews from vincent canby in the new york times uh from 1984 but yeah for a lot of years this movie was just kind of swept under the rug
2: i hate that vincent canby review he he's basically i think he's trying to say that this movie is fine but he just does it in such a demeaning way
0: is that the one where he says that basically the performance is much better than the film, and it's sort of like very politely saying it's it's not a masterpiece, but it's interesting. In a very, yes. Yeah.
2: It's it's one of those awful uses of well, this is interesting. Yeah. Like, just say what you really mean. I won't say that the film
3: is perfect, but I sure do enjoy watching it, and I love the way that it looks. I love the way that it's put together, and it feels like there's a lot of intelligence going on behind it i mean you talked a little bit about the horla i know that laurie was familiar with that he did a performance of it on the radio and i know that he was very steeped in great literature i mean he was a huge dostoevsky fan i mean the crime and punishment was his passion project for a lot of years so yeah he he knows his stuff man and it really comes through in the film
2: And I think we've talked about this as a companion piece to M, but it's also interesting to see this as a companion piece to Crime and Punishment because they have so many, I guess, sort of overlapping themes. Even the early death in the apartment when he kills his fiancée, it's not quite the same thing as him killing his landlady. But I think there is a similar... That's the breaking point for the character.
3: And when he came to the U.S., I mean, he... Was involved in a version of Crime and Punishment that came, Mm -hmm. who was it, two films after The Man Who Knew Too Much, which was kind of his, uh, that was, well, he made that in, in the UK, but he came over to the US, was in Mad Love, which you brought up earlier, and then Crime and Punishment. But I don't think that he was as happy with the version of Crime and Punishment that he could have been. I mean, that really, I think to him, that was the movie that was going to put him on the map. And unfortunately, I mean, even though it's, von sternberg directing it it just wasn't as big as it probably should have been
2: i think he has a couple of those films where it just he gives these great performances and like the last one the films aren't perfect and they certainly have some issues but the way they're ignored just doesn't make any sense like that version of crime and punishment which i didn't see until recently it's well worth watching and being talked about a lot more than it is
0: I think I mean, it's a classic case of a film which just doesn't fit a pattern. Uh, and, and, and I think there's, you know, there are an awful lot of examples. I mean, historians obviously want to speak. Well, not just historians, programmers and viewers, they want to have a concept about what German cinema is, and particularly of those periods and decades. You know, it's, uh, in other words, basically, the fun doesn't really start until the 70s. Therefore, we can kind of write off everything Prior to that, you know, I'm talking about the kind of foreign reception here, but I think it's really when you actually have a film which doesn't fit in, like Peeping Tom in the case of Michael Powell in England, you know, it does take 20, 30 years for it to be kind of uh, uh, recontextualized and seen without all the baggage of its present time, uh, the time in which it came out. And it does strike me very much as a film which just really is kind of. Um, yeah, well, Lost, you know, Lost in that particular time. So uh, it, it is unfortunate because I kind of get the feeling that I'd like to see more films by Peter Laurie after this.
2: Yeah, it's, I really wish he could have had this be sort of the turning point as his homecoming as, you know, maybe a German director.
3: He w- was pretty much a triple threat at this point with uh, helping to write this, directing it, and acting in it. And we didn't talk about the performance as much as we probably should have i mean the one moment as we were talking about the performance earlier and the whole idea of him possibly getting a little hammy here and there the the thing that came to my mind as the moment of really going out there when it came to the acting and it paying off was when he goes back to his laboratory at one point and he happens to touch some of the rabbit blood and he looks at himself in the mirror and he puts his hand up on his face and when he pulls it away, there's blood on his face. So well done. And just the performance there. I mean, yeah, I can see where people might say that's a little big, but for me, it was just like, this is great. He is a marked man now and it just really worked. And that that comes before a a fantastic shot of him walking down a hallway and it's very similar to those scenes that we get of him walking especially later right at the very end when he's walking down the railroad tracks just oh a man alone and just it it works so well to me
2: that's beautiful the
0: scene with the blood i think it's a huge problem in terms of well cinema performances in particular this idea this idea that less is always more, uh, the idea that you know a Robert Brasson film is the you know the the pinnacle, and if something is in the direction of kind of deviating from naturalistic behaviour towards something which may have you know symbolic properties, in this case the the blood and everything else, it's therefore ham-fisted and bad. I mean, no, I mean, Orson Welles was very explicit about this, talking about James Cagney saying that you know his performances were where, you know, he, he he performed like opera, but it was really, really focused. And I think that even though it is verging on the big, this is this is a very focused performance. And uh, I, I certainly don't have a problem with it.
2: No, and I think if you look at something like his performance as Dr. Gogol in Mad Love, there he does sort of a Cagney-level, just hysterical, over-the-top, but I would also argue similarly focused. He doesn't just lose it for no reason. He, he kind of acts as the tempo of the film and instead of it just being all about cinematography or score, he's really able to set the pace of scenes in a way that I don't think a lot of other actors are, especially in these types of films and he does that here, but I think you have to watch it closely to get what he's doing. He's, he's wonderful.
3: I mean, you could say, okay, well, in M he goes over the top. I mean, when he's defending himself that he really goes out there and does it, but that's appropriate for the character. I mean, all this stuff, the, the over the topness of gogol all of it is appropriate to the character. We're not just going like, Oh my God, what is Peter Lory doing here? Each time he does that, it really tugs on my heartstrings. Oh, There's still so, much.
0: At the top. so I think this is, this is the the crazy situation when you, when you read those novels and you think, how can you not say this is totally hysterical? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they are absolutely nuts, those novels. And, you know, and, and, and I think that's, I think it, it's a problem when you read that it's somehow more acceptable and less offensive than when you see it. And and, and, and I think that's that, that can be a problem sometimes. The grotesqueries which you'll read in a, a Russian novel, uh, it, it's, oh, well, that's a characteristic of Russian literature. <laughs> that's blah, 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 blah. But when you actually see something like that on screen, it's like, no, that's just, it's too much. It's grotesque. It's theatrical. It's ugh.
2: I think also in that case, it's all about education and expectation. You're not just, pro- I'm sure this has happened at some point, but I would say by and large, nobody is going to pick up demons and just casually flip through it. I mean, it's insane. You you kind of have to know what it is and who the author is and some of the political context to understand anything about it. I mean, Zdrowowski films are the same way. You're not just going to turn on TV and happen to see something the way you would happen to see a melodrama or a soap opera. So I think anybody who's educated about Lore and particularly about his theatrical background wouldn't see this as being over the top. But somebody who's only used to mainstream films probably would. And certainly German audiences in 1951 who really just wanted Hollywood movies and just wanted to be entertained would probably not have engaged with this in the way that we are, for instance.
0: It's an entertaining film. I, 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 I was never. I, it never felt like um, anything other than it, it. It felt like a genre film, but the question was which genre? Because oh, you know, it's, it, it's it's operating on so many genres at the same time, and I think that that, that is the only issue which I think I, I could really fault it with on a major level. It is the, the, the it's constantly changing into other things, which is also the source of its interest. Oh, definitely. Uh, but 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 it is, i i can imagine that uncertainty it can can be off putting because there is that degree of uh, expectation and unfulfilled expectation when you you know you set out in one direction and then you jump in another i mean there are, there are you know one response is well i didn't see that coming and the other response is well where's the payoff
2: yeah and i think there's also oh, a very strange gap in late 40s and 50s German cinema where there's not really a lot of different genre happening. There are almost no horror films made during that period. And I mean, I mentioned that Syadmak film, but there aren't really a lot of thrillers either. They're all these sort of, you know, Heimat films or musicals, or they're all just really escapist. And I think I mean, Daniel and I have talked about this a lot in terms of other directors, but it's really hard to market movies that are borrowing from or exploring so many different genres. So I, he's sort of swimming against the, the tide here.
3: Well, in this experience, it seems to me that this really took the wind out of his sails because when he returned to the U.S., I mean, I can't say that Peter Lorre ever gave a bad performance, but looking at the level of his work afterwards. Yes, of course he was in beat the devil, which I know is a very divisive film as far as, is it good or is it bad? But you know, it's just like his little roles that he was doing in 20,000 leagues under the sea or 80, uh, around the world in 80 days. I mean, there's nothing of this level that he ever does again. And there's some, yeah, he was great in the, the Corman films, um, That's true, but it's not this level of performance. I mean, there's no, the the passion that we see in this film isn't there again. You know, it's, uh, except for Muscle Beach Party. That's pretty much it. Other than Muscle Beach Party, I can't say that he gives this level of performance again.
2: Which is tragic. I mean, and I love, Comedy of Terrors is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think if you need proof that he had comedic genius, that would be all the evidence you need. But agreed, it's just not... It's it's almost like he's sort of retired in a way and is just making these kind of pleasant little films where he doesn't have to really sacrifice any parts of himself.
0: He's giving what the audience wants, <laughs> which is which is just a... Uh which is really depressing because it's just yeah just it is like a, a very reluctant parody isn't
3: it it is well yeah even when it comes to his level of comedy yes he was a comedy genius and i completely give that to him because for me he is hilarious in arsenic and old lace
2: yeah to compare yes.
3: arsenic and old lace to comedy of terrors is just like okay it's a very different performance very different film is he great yes is that the level of what we saw before? Eh, not necessarily. It's more like those almost cameo roles that he was doing in stuff like the Patsy. And it was just like, eh, okay, you know, I can't fault him for any of that stuff. I thought he was great and all of that. But yeah, he's just not front and center. He's not the same Peter Laurie that we see in 1951.
2: Well, it's also even his cameo roles don't have the same weight, because if you think about his cameo roles in something like Casablanca, or we talked about Stranger on the Third Floor a couple months ago, which is one of my favorite early Lore films, he's in both of those films for maybe five minutes total, but his performances are impossible to forget. And I think that's not the case in those later cameos. It's, it's like he's checked out and he's still amazing. But I think between his personal struggles and being forced to return to Hollywood and yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that's why I think this film has that sort of weird, not predictive, but that sort of weird biographical element where you just see someone who's so beaten down
0: it's very interesting that it's almost like a genre this this kind of actors who usually make one film uh and 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 but they do tend to it's almost like they're kind of not so much concerned with starting a career as a director but just like exercising something out of the system i mean even even coming up to like you know like when gary oldman did like nail by mouth and everything else and you think well why are you doing that film But, you know, of course, it's great. It's brilliant. But, you know, it's 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 and he did it. And as far as far as I know, I don't think he's done anything since he's a director, maybe wrong about that. But it is interesting. And Charles Lawton is the obvious comparison. Yes. Uh, with Knights of the Hunter, which is another kind of uh, what? Well, you know, it's, it's a masterpiece. But at the same time, it's just really tragic that that didn't open up any kind of horizon.
2: And that's definitely another one that I think explores a couple different genres in a way that people were really not ready for.
0: Exactly. But I think that the way in which it, I think it's more, I, I don't want to use the word confident, but it, it it's, it's, uh, it's bolder in the way that it plays a genre than this. I think there's no question of hesitation about you know, that it, it. It sets. I, I, I don't know. There are very few films which actually establish a world like night of the hunter does. It's just incredible.
3: Agreed. When well, I wonder if, the difference there, too, is that it wasn't Lawton directing himself.
2: Yeah, I mean, Robert Mitchum is also hard to argue with. And he, kind of the way Laurie sets a lot of the tone, Laurie's performance sets a lot of the tone in The Lost One, I think Mitchum similarly brings a level of confidence to that film. Because if you had anyone who was had less presence in that role, it would have been campy and ridiculous. In Night of the Hunter, I mean, sorry. Right. No, I gotcha.
3: I gotcha. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. <laughs>
4: face.
1: think that to kill him will make you a man?
2: I don't know about that.
1: Won't you try to forget this?
0: Forget
4: it? Not as long as I breathe. You
2: know, maybe the boys all petered out from playing on the beach with that little jumping beat.
1: That's right, Bobby. she share with us. Get
4: up, you scum-sucking pig! Yeah. i mention her once more, and I wouldn't tear your arms out.
3: We'll be back next week with a discussion of another one-and-done director, Marlon Brando, and his film One-Eyed Jax. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Sam and Danielle. So, Sam, you were just on the ninth configuration episode, but I still want to know, what's the latest with you?
2: Doing eight million things, as always. I think probably the next thing worth talking about is Diabolique, where I'm an editor. We will have another summer print issue coming out. And I'm really excited about that. It is going to be sort of folk art and witchcraft themed.
3: And Daniel, how about you? What's going on in your part of the world?
0: Um, I'm I'm still recovering from the uh, the, the six month baroque onslaught uh, <laughs> across across the U.S. and Europe. It's uh, so uh, yeah. I believe the uh, Olive released the Blu-rays of. Uh, Barovczyk short films, the Theatre of Mr. and Mrs. Cabal and Go to Island of Love and Blanche uh, last month and that had some of the, the documentaries which are prepared for the Arrow discs on there and uh, and yes, uh, uh, I should mention the uh, the Barovczyk book which was published to accompany the Pompidou Tenter retrospective in February and March um, but other than that I'm completely barovczyk out for the moment.
2: <laughs> you are Why not
3: I guess it's good that we're taking a little bit of a break before uh uh Lamarge, which uh, I think at the moment we are planning on doing in July, which uh yeah you guys have taken me down a very interesting rabbit hole of Barovczek because I have not really exposed myself to his work before, so uh
0: yeah, uh thank you.
2: It's the best rabbit hole ever uh, actually it's ever the,
0: it's the most fantastically depressing rabbit hole ever no. <laughs>
2: maybe for you cheer no, up no, but but it, but it's
0: it's it's such a strange problem. I and mean, if you are going to feel really thoroughly miserable it has to be in that bar picture down the lunch because it's just like it is it, no bar can
2: compete with that place and, and you I, have to bring hard boiled eggs
0: oh exactly that's the, only, <laughs> the, the 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 price of admission is a hard boiled egg
3: <laughs> i've been rubbing hard boiled eggs all over my body this entire time we've been talking today <laughs>
2: Oh, good. well, then you'll be fully prepared to talk about Lamarge.
0: <laughs> there was that w- weird situation last year when I think it was some some like some spa or somebody like some some store like that said at a loss what to do for Valentine's Day? Why not buy some hard boiled eggs and i thought what what, <laughs> what on earth i mean is this is this some sort of reference to Lamarge and Empire of the Senses? and story <laughs> of the
2: eye. That's which the eye,
0: you know. It's just, it's just, what which kind isn't, of at the spa, you know, with
2: That's an even more exciting Valentine's Day.
0: Well, it could be even worse. They could say, find some spice up Valentine's Day with a bag full of eyes. You know, it could be.
2: <laughs> that's, that, that's very true.
3: <laughs> well, the person who we're talking about next week, uh, Marlon Brando, he would definitely uh, be into some butter.
2: <laughs> he definitely would. <laughs>
3: and daniel we're gonna have to figure out when uh to have you back uh we're doing an on the silver globe episode so i gotta work on a time to uh talk to you about that because i seem to understand that you know a little bit about that movie
0: i was no, in than L- no, a few weeks ago uh, which, uh, for a festival and uh which they kindly uh, invited me and we, we screened on the silver globe there so uh so yes no it would be a pleasure and uh The only problem with On the Silver Globe is that even though the film's three hours long, I think you need at least six hours to just get started on it. Well, it's going to be Heather
3: Drain and Joe Yannick on that one. So hopefully uh, I'll let them know to reserve an afternoon. Two hours each. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time today. This has been like I can't say pleasure talking about this movie, but it was a pleasure actually having somebody else to discuss this movie with because it is such a great film. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, Projection-Boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show, and to our Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. And this episode will be running late, I can guarantee it. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.